there is a battle brewing right now in Canada. And if you're not paying attention, I want to catch you up. Check this out. Throughout the summer and fall of 2021, I traveled extensively throughout the United States. And this is the first time I understood the true value of the sovereignty of the states. Because back then, the whole world, right, was in some version of restrictions or shutdowns and all of this. Yet every time I crossed the state line, I got to experience a completely different style of risk management, right? The whole world was dealing with some threats, but it wasn't the same threat in Oregon as it was in Arizona or Idaho. It wasn't the same in California as it was in Texas. It wasn't the same in Washington as it was in Nebraska. And I loved this because depending on how people felt about this threat, they could then choose their own adventure. And for the first time, I, as a Canadian, truly understood the value of the sovereignty of the states. Small fractured leadership allowed for more optionality and choice. Now, in Canada, right now, the Premier of Alberta is fighting for similar sovereignty for her province. So for my American viewers, <clears throat> Canada has 10 provinces and three territories. And in some ways, these provinces and territories operate similar to American states, and in other ways, they vary greatly. So the provinces, like states, retain exclusive power over many decisions, like civil and property rights, civil criminal justice, provincial tax rates, and natural resource management. The federal government, on the other hand, retains other powers, such as decisions over trade and commerce, defense, shipping, banking, quarantines, currency, and citizenship. Now, the provinces generate revenue through their domestic industries, but the federal government collects the taxes and then redistributes those revenues back to the provinces. And this allows the facilitation of what we call transfer payments. This is a rebalancing of wealth between wealthy provinces and poor ones, okay? Now, Alberta, which is a province super rich with energy reserves, often referred to as the Texas of Canada, has historically punched far above its weight in contributing to Canada's well-being. But while the federal government in Ottawa has readily accepted the revenues that Alberta provides, it has simultaneously crippled Alberta's energy sector through heavy regulation and policy changes, effectively biting the hand that feeds it. Now, the newly elected Alberta Premier, Danielle Smith, has recently put forward legislation intended to spotlight what she considers to be federal government overreach into the provinces. She calls this the Alberta Sovereignty Act. You might have heard of it. Now, this act, the media right now is calling it unprecedented. And in many ways, it is. But right now in Saskatchewan, the province directly to the east of Alberta, they're running a parallel game called the Saskatchewan First Act. So the federal government right now is is utilizing media to say that Canadians are very concerned about these provincial bills. I'm not, but that's what the media is saying. However, the Saskatchewan Legis Legislative Assembly recently voted on the second reading of this bill, and the result was a 43 to zero vote in favor, right, in favor of the Saskatchewan First Act. This is bipartisan support from the right, the left, and the center. So I don't know how concerned citizens of the provinces really are. So Alberta and Saskatchewan have recently put forward legislature. In Manitoba, the province, one more over to the east, is now in discussion with both provinces. The significance of this is that while Alberta and Saskatchewan are laden with resources that the world wants, they're both landlocked. There's no access to any international ports. But Manitoba, however, has a northern coastline. So this is what I mean when I say a fight is brewing in Canada, and it's a fight that Canada has not seen before. There is a coordinated effort 
from the provinces to seek safe harbor from the federal leadership. Now, a battle requires two parties. And as much of a critic of our Prime Minister Trudeau as I may be, he is not afraid to scrap. He's a fighter. In 2012, he actually stepped into a literal boxing ring with a conservative senator for a five-round sanctioned boxing match. And the senator was no joke. He had a black belt in karate. He served in the Navy. But Trudeau beat him bloody. And he didn't win some kind of a cheesy decision. The referee actually had to step in and stop the fight to protect the senator. So when this fight comes to the provinces versus the federal government, it's really all about the energy industry. The choice to produce and sell the energy that we have now to the world that needs it now in exchange to grow our economy now or question the sustainability of our current energy sector and replace it with something better in the future. Case in point, Germany's chancellor recently came to Canada to meet with Trudeau and beg him for a natural gas export agreement to support Germany through this winter. But Trudeau shut him down and said he couldn't make a sound business case for that deal. But what he could do is promise hydrogen power. The problem is we don't have any to export. The government of Canada's position on hydrogen power right now is that hopefully by 2050, clean hydrogen may help us achieve our net zero goal. So be patient, Chancellor, right? Now, Canada does, however, have lots of natural gas at current estimates around 1.3 trillion cubic feet, which is equal to about 200 years of annual current demand. Now, this example is an excellent summary of the debate that will unfold in Canada over the next few years, led by the premiers of the provinces who have the resources that the world wants, opposed by the federal government and their strategy for a fossil fuel-free economy. And that idea, the fossil fuel-free economy, I want to unpack just a little bit. Now, I'm an environmentalist. I've lived many years of my life in very remote parts of the country, surrounded by untouched wilderness and thriving wildlife populations. And today I'm raising my family in a small town where bears and cougars are often spotted in the neighborhood. Just last week at my six-year-old soccer practice, the parents were told to be vigilant because there had been a cougar sighting around the park the week prior. Now, I value this wilderness, and I think I understand more than most what we stand to lose if we don't protect our environment. I truly believe that I do. But a binary focus on fossil fuels equal bad and renewables equal good is not only short-sighted, it's misleading. Solar energy may be renewable in the sense that the sun always shines, but the technologies required to harness and store this power for productive use are anything but renewable. Now, the minerals required to scale solar and wind and then build the batteries to store this energy would create the most aggressive mining rush the world has ever seen. There is no way around this. Astronomical amounts of copper, nickel, coal as a steel alloy, lithium, cobalt, silver, manganese, vanadium, it goes on and on. And are we led to assume that the same voices who are so adamant we need to shut down our fossil fuel industry will suddenly become the same voices supporting the permitting of mines all over the world to get the minerals that we need for this new strategy? Like, is that a realistic expectation? I don't think there's a chance. And furthermore, the components of these technologies, the silicone, the fiberglass, the steel alloys, they all require fossil fuels as an ingredient. A barrel of oil is used to produce about 6,000 different products, only 30% of which are combustible. So maybe we could wean the world off of oil if we could wean the world off of concrete, asphalt, steel, and plastic. Now, we should always innovate towards better solutions, and we will. Right, I'll bet all day long on human ingenuity and progress. I just don't believe that a federal government central planning 
process is the best way to get there. And that's why I'll be watching this battle between the provinces and the federal government super closely. Regional leadership leads to an increase in trial and error, equating to more optionality and choice. Exactly what I experienced during 2021 when I was traveling extensively through the US. Small fractured efforts create more efficient solutions, right? When a restaurant fails, the industry gets stronger because a lesson is learned and entrepreneurs carry it forward. Whereas large top-down systems lead to increased fragility and unseen vulnerabilities, right? When a bank fails, the industry gets weaker. Interdependencies lead to contagion. Now, it often seems like we're running off a cliff and out of time. And in fact, in 1894, the Times newspaper predicted that in 50 years, every street in London will be buried under nine feet of horse manure. Now, at that point in time, traffic congestion led by horses and carts was clogging the streets of London with horse feces and swarms of flies were causing breakouts of typhoid fever. Dead horses would be left to putrefy in the road and large cities all over the world were facing this crisis. New York was run by over 100,000 horses producing over 2.5 million pounds of manure every single day. This became known as the Great Horse Manure Crisis of 1894 and it was predicted that urban civilization was doomed. What saved the day? An innovative new technology thought to be environmentally friendly, the internal combustion engine, the automobile. Poop free, right? And here we are. So the world is not simple. It would be nice if it was, but it isn't. We are terrible predictors of our future and we are terrible predictors of the ripple effects of our decisions. And that is why promises of anything for the year 2050 are completely empty and meaningless and nothing but. But look, what do I know? I have my own blind spots. In order to see them more clearly and understand this issue more clearly, I'm going to be joined live on stage by two opposing forces, the former premiers of British Columbia and Saskatchewan, Christy Clark and Brad Wall. While British Columbia has long been the obstacle between Alberta's resource market and the global trade system, we're the province between Alberta and the ocean, Saskatchewan on the east side of Alberta has largely stood as an ally. These debates will be hosted as part of my conference, the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference hosted in Vancouver, BC on January 29th and 30th. Check out the link below. And my promise to the audience is that I will not pull any punches with either politician. I'm gonna be following this issue very closely as it develops, as the Saskatchewan First Act moves forward, as the Alberta Sovereignty Act moves forward and how and how Manitoba joins the fight, all right? This could change the landscape of Canada. I'm excited to find out if it does. And as always, I publish a weekly newsletter and I'd love to have you join the team. I publish every Sunday, it's free, and I absolutely love writing it. There's a link below where you can subscribe. See you next time. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor, follow or subscribe to this podcast. Drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.